I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections, and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes, and my guest today is Doreen Cunningham. And actually, now I think about it, diving in is the right word when it comes to Doreen's new book. Doreen is an Irish-British writer who was born in Wales. After studying engineering, she worked briefly in climate-related research at the National Environment Research Council and in storm modelling at Newcastle University before turning to journalism. She has worked for the BBC World Service variously as an international news reporter, editor, producer and reporter since 2000. In 2020, she won the RSL Giles St. Auburn Award and the following year in 2021 was shortlisted for the Eccles Centre and Hay Festival Writers Award. Her first book, Soundings, a memoir that tells the story of how she and her then two-year-old son Max followed migrating whales from Mexico up the west coast of America and Canada and on into the Arctic, has just been published by Virago. Welcome to our shells, Doreen. It's really lovely to have you here today. Thank you for having me. It's really an honour. Fascinated to talk about Soundings because it's such an extraordinary memoir. It's out this week, so congratulations. Thank you. But that means that many of our listeners won't have had a chance to read it yet. So I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about how the book came about and give us just a taster of the journey that you start therein. Or I suppose I should sort of say journeys because it's it's not just a traditional travel memoir in that you write about quite a few sort of emotional journeys that you've been on you also discuss climate the climate crisis and uh the sort of how that is related to your work experience over the years well it came about when um I was stuck at home with baby twins and couldn't go anywhere and I'm a bit of a wanderer I do get very itchy feet and um uh because I couldn't move um I had to do something and so the book started and it was actually really lovely to kind of reacquaint myself with the traveling that I'd done with my son when he was two I couldn't possibly go off with two babies and then an (laughs) older child but I was able to relive the journey and um, my time living in the Arctic with an Inupiaq family um, an incredibly uh, special time a really a real privilege to have been able to do that the backbone of the journey is I was living in a hostel for homeless single mothers with my two-year-old 
and um, struggling to do freelance work at night, struggling to earn enough even just to afford to stay there. And uh, I um, lied to get a bank loan and uh, went off to follow the grey whale migration. I kind of read about them one night when I was in the hostel and was so inspired inspired by their endurance. They're not a species I'd known anything about because they're not particularly... Um, in some ways charismatic they don't jump around like humpbacks and they're not giant like blues and they're kind of gray a bit knobbly and barnacled Um, but what I read was that if you go to a particular place in Baja California in Mexico they will come up and play with the boats and sometimes they're called friendlies it's a really strange phenomenon because these are lagoons where the whales have actually been slaughtered en masse by Um, whalers in the past but they have uh, displayed kind of a behavioral plasticity which is also really interesting because part of what makes them such incredible fascinating animals is that they are so flexible Mm. um, in how they behave and um, they show for me what was so inspiring as well as the endurance of this incredible migration where they travel up to the arctic and back they feed in the arctic they give birth in mexico and so they're kind of doing this journey every year the mothers with their calves and that you know that was very appealing as a single parent I was like well they can do it I can do it let's go and see them um uh but also they have survived um previous climate change they survived through the ice ages um probably because they are so flexible on what they eat um you know they've showed massive resilience and adaptivity and I find that very inspiring too The backbone of the book is that journey, traveling from Baja, California, all the way up the West Coast to the Arctic. But then that is interwoven with an earlier journey I did before becoming a mum when I was working as a journalist. And I traveled to the Arctic, to Ukkarabik, which is the most northerly town in Alaska. And it's the home of the Inupiaq people. And I had gone there to um, record uh, eyewitness accounts of climate change. uh, And I was um, so welcomed, so taken, so so drawn into that community by a particular family who opened their doors to me and lived there for a while um, and had the most um, wonderful experience, but also saw how climate change was impacting very deeply on that culture and community. Um, and, uh, when I gave birth to my twins, I suppose I was in a bubble for a while and I hadn't quite realized where we were with the science of climate. I wasn't working in journalism for a time and I took a break to look after the babies. Then, you know, Extinction Rebellion happened and I took a good look, was devastated to see that actually what we're talking about is an unfolding in my lifetime in my children's lifetime and as a mother it's very hard to know what to do Mm. I felt very responsible I felt a huge amount of grief and that also powered me through putting this book together while I had very young children it's an act of activism I feel like the general public have been sidelined have not been given the information about what's happening mothers particularly and carers you know, don't know what's happening, don't understand what's happening and don't understand how it's all interlinked. If I could miss it, Mm. then 
I think a lot of people will have missed it. You know, I'd worked in climate science. I was already devoting my life to it as much as I could. Um, And I had taken my eye off the ball. And, uh, you know, I think that actually the scientific models were very conservative. um, And also it was very tempting to believe the sceptics. Of course, it was a a much lovelier experience to listen to someone who's being funny and jocular and making fun of people who are talking about very difficult things. Mm. Um, And uh, so basically the book is uh, me trying to um, carry that story in a way that's accessible to really celebrate and inspire the stories of the people and the animals that I spent time with during those journeys how wonderful it was and how wonderful it is being a mum to try and carry all of it. Well, I think you pulled it off beautifully. It's a wonderful story of endurance on so many levels. Like I love the way that the the sort of endurance of the whales that you're talking about and the way that they make this migration with with their calves each year and the way that they keep going despite such kind of changes in their the climate in which they live over the years, obviously. And then there's you and Max making this journey, which is quite problematic at times and and really quite hard for you to do. I'd love to know a little bit more just about the writing process. It must have been incredibly emotional, not only to kind of go back and relive these moments in your life, which without wanting to give too much away, but there's some really kind of, you know, heart-wrenching stuff that goes on here. Some of your relationships with the people that you met and obviously your relationship with Max along the way, but sort of bringing together a story that is very personal to you that has all these resonances with the wider world how did it feel putting it down on paper was it a sort of cathartic experience in that classic way that people talk about or was it actually quite hard to do um it wasn't cathartic uh it was very hard and um I wouldn't have done it except I um I did something called a novel in a year uh, which is run by um, someone called Andrea Mason, where she gives you deadlines. Mm. I basically paid to get some deadlines to get some stuff out. It was just, the story was so obvious. You know, the yeah. structure of the book was so obvious in terms of the journey. Um, so I'd never written anything like that before. I'd written as a journalist, but that was always very short news pieces. And I was mainly presenting radio. So it was extremely mm. factual and very quick. Um, so I had no experience. And then I actually did an MA um, on which I did none of the reading, but all of the workshops and um, uh, just produced a lot of stuff. And I think that what that did is it gave me confidence because I had no confidence that I could write a book and also no confidence that I could do it well, um, particularly when writing about Um, a tribe that I'm not part of. Mm -hmm. And I got a lot of um, feedback. I checked in a lot of times with people in the community, but also writers on the course. Um, I was uh, really at a very early stage, really encouraged by um, uh, uh, Diana Evans, who I had a workshop with, and she said, your writing about race is really intelligent. And I think if I hadn't heard that at an early stage, I wouldn't have the confidence to carry on. Mm. Um, and it was all really important encouragement. So I just couldn't have done it without a community around me saying, oh, I like that. Yeah, carry on. Mm. And then um, by the end, I had a kind of vaguely shaped thing to send off. So it, it was very rushed, actually. 
And the the family that you stayed with up in the Arctic on your first visit, who you like you say you become very close to, and in the book you keep in touch with over the years after you've left, and then you go and revisit them again. Um, I'm fascinated. Maybe this is quite a personal question, but have they read the book? Have you sort of presume? Obviously, you kind of told them you were writing about it, and and how was that? Yes, um, they knew from the beginning I was writing about it. Um, the Julia, the kind of main character in the book, knows about it. Um, also, some of the other family members. Julia herself didn't read it, but another family member read all the parts about the community. Mm. Um, and I also got someone else in the community who wasn't part of the family, but who, you know, perhaps wouldn't be as distracted by the the personal relationships just to read it from a community point of view to That's see very if clever. there was anything that they were worried about um uh, I was I would not have I would not have published without having done Mm. that yeah yeah it's beautiful um well it's absolutely beautiful I think and it's a real testament as well to what you can achieve I think as a as a mother people there's a lot of talk about how to balance kind of work and motherhood there's a lot of talk about how to write when you're a mother and the very fact that you took this incredible journey when you you know Max was still so young but then the idea that you wrote it after you had kind of young twins as well on top of that I'm incredibly impressed so well done thank you well it wasn't easy it wasn't easy financially either yeah. I mean during the writing we were we were actually still living on food bank donations so it was um uh I really wanted to do it well I think it's an incredible achievement um and I just can't wait for our listeners to read it it's wonderful if you know I knew nothing about grey whales going into it I knew nothing about um life in the Arctic and I've learned I learned so much but I also found it it's a you know it's really beautifully kind of written um narrative non-fiction as well I think the story is, is stunning so thank you well thank you so much well let's get into some of our main questions now uh we're going to talk about some books that you've been reading recently um Doreen could you tell me about a couple of books that are currently on your bedside table please I've wanted to read this particular book that I'm reading at the moment for years I haven't had time to get around to it and I'm really enjoying it it's Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimura, citizen of the Potawatomi Nation. And uh, she is both a very distinguished professor um, and also writes from her wisdom as um, a Native American person who understands plants as part of her cultural heritage. And uh, I've only read the first few chapters, but and it, there, there's so much to take in. It's so complex and so beautifully written that I'm going to take my time over it. Um, uh, what I love immediately about it is the way that it explains the wisdom of plants and makes them basically into people with agency from whom we can learn. Mm. And in the first chapter, um, she talks about what she calls the council of pecans, the the pecan tree, the nut tree. Right. And um, she tells the story of her own grandfather as a child out gathering nuts with his friends um, in a year when the trees are fruiting and nut trees don't do this all the time they um, build up their reserves and then fruit very dramatically all together in the same year and you can't really tell when that's going to be and the elders used to say that they stood in council and discussed it and talked about it and then decided <laughs> and the effect is that they outwit the squirrels because Uh, When they all fruit together, there's tons and tons of nuts and the squirrels can't possibly eat them all. And so some will survive and grow into new trees. And then during the time when they don't fruit, um, the squirrels kind of have to go somewhere else 
find other food, get eaten by hawks and foxes, and there are fewer of them. And so the idea is that the trees kind of have a chat and say, oh, look, not too many squirrels around, let's go for it. Um, and of course, the idea that trees could communicate was uh, poo-pooed by science for a very long time. But, um, you know, with her botanist hat on, she can explain that we know now that they do communicate by pheromones, which are sort of like hormones carried on the wind, mm. and that it's perfectly possible that there is a sort of tree council going on. Um, and uh, but, but then she talks about her people. Not only were they kind of forcibly relocated mm. multiple times, but in the end they were offered land as individuals with the promise of never being moved again. Okay. So that broke this communal relationship with the land, which was so important culturally. And then she goes back to the Pecans and she offers their lesson, which is to make decisions in community and to seek community. And she talks about people gathering now and you know, renewing and re-strengthening ties, talking about how the, the trees stick together and how important that is. That sounds absolutely fascinating. And it's a book that I've heard of, but not one that I've sort of come around to reading. But I love that idea of actually not just braiding together those stories of the sort of, you know, the what we might think of as the myths or the the stories that kind of hold sway in the community, but also then showing that they are backed up by science. What a strange and kind of incredible thing to do. Yes, it's a real celebration of her culture. And another aspect that really interests me is um, uh, she goes on to talk about the grammar of okay. her own language and how it differs from English in that our language shapes our worldview. And in most indigenous languages, including Inuit languages and the Inupiaq language, which I'm obviously interested in and, and which features in my book, there is no word for it. And so obviously, if you called a person it, that would be offensive. And in these languages, in our language, you know, if I called you it, that wouldn't be very nice. <laughs> and in their own languages, the same word is used to address all the living world. So you would address the same word is used to address your family as all other life and not mm. just life, actually. Rocks are addressed as animate as well because the living world is regarded as family. And I love that. I mean, that's the world that I would like to live in, one where we talk about and treat other living things with respect and as relations. I think that's a really beautiful concept for a language to hold. And in soundings, I often use the Inupiaq words that I was taught when I'm describing animals. So mm. Arvik, the bowhead whale, is a major character in the book. And I wanted the reader to appreciate it through the Inupiaq word, because we have bowhead, which refers to the shape of the jaw, and there's balena mysticetus, which is the Latin word, which kind of implies the Linnaean classification and a hierarchy of life. But I want the readers to see the whale as a relative, to really care about the whales. Oh, and what's the second book you're going to tell us about today, Doreen? Well, this book is called The Marrow Thieves, and it's by a young Métis author, Cherie Demiline, and it's a young adult book. This book is simply stunning. The narrator is a young boy. He has a very strong voice, which absolutely held my attention. And the story is devastating, but it's also humorous. And what comes through is an incredible sense of community and fierceness and strength in these characters. It basically is the story of attempted genocide of Indigenous Americans. It's set in the future 
Although as you read it, you are reminded continually that this has actually happened. Right. So the characters are on the run constantly throughout the book. And Cherie Demeline, when she talks in interviews, mentions that as kind of being a parallel to the constant threat of loss that these communities feel you know in a contemporary way they're trying the mad dash towards regaining or reclaiming what they had is how she describes it which exists for native people and which mirrors what she's done in the book and she herself was from a community that was relocated twice Um, and so this story is different from what happened but it's also the same and the premise is that uh, indigenous people are being hunted for their bone marrow because it holds their dreams Um, (laughs) But the story, you know, it, that's fantastical, obviously. But the story is so believable because although that premise is different, what happens is very firmly based in reality in what mm. has already happened historically. And I, I've listened to, to her do interviews and, and also the world that she has built in the book is very firmly based in reality. She used NASA projections on climate change to um, think about how she was going to portray the landscape that these people are fleeing through. So cities on the coast have crumbled, you know, the earth is devastated, there's near constant rain, and there's been a massive migration inland. It's absolutely awful, but it's very, very believable, which is the stunning thing about it. I think she's a genius. It makes me think of that thing about speculative fiction. The best speculative fiction is always that that's based in reality, right? Like it's not the way that Margaret Atwood talks about The Handmaid's Tale as having everything in that book has happened in some form in our history. We just, you know, we might not be aware of it, right? Right, yeah. So you're being told about things, but you're not being lectured or Mm. told off. You're being quite gently reminded. It's a really beautiful way of doing it. And how did you first come across her? How did I first come across her? I don't know. Is it because the topic is something you're interested in? No, I think it's more that I like reading books by Indigenous authors. So I probably came across her before I came across her book. And next up, you're going to tell me about a couple of articles that you read recently that have made you think. Yeah, that's right. I read an article by the author of Made. She's an American writer, and that's, of course, been made into a really interesting Netflix series. And what I liked about that was... Just, it was very helpful to read that article. I've also got that book sitting there ready to read. I've got a bit of a pile. I don't know when I'll get to that one. But it was the way that she acknowledged the the PTSD that stays with you after you've experienced real financial insecurity or um, not having a home with a child. The title of the article is I Left Poverty After Writing Made but poverty never left me. Um, And she also found it difficult to kind of, you know, her life has turned out very well. The book was part of that. It's really helped her. And she's in a a very secure and happy situation now. Um, But there's a line somewhere in the article where she talks about, you know, socialising people who would have been her clients that she would have been cleaning for and the sort of Mm. discomfort that she feels um and also she very perceptively and interestingly mentions that she knows that her story is one that is very palatable because she's white um she's educated she ended up getting a degree and she's made it out of poverty and that's a little bit 
discomforting or very discomforting and people tell her oh you deserve this you know this is great and she's like well everyone deserves this and we really need to sit with the stories of people who haven't made it out Mm. and people who are you know more affected by poverty different communities and look at inequality do you think this resonated particularly with you because of your own experiences? I mean, you talked briefly earlier about how when you were writing soundings, you know, you were living off food stamps for some of it. And you obviously talk in the book about living in the hostel um, with Max when he was quite young. And that's clearly something, um, I, you know, that sort of stuff doesn't go away overnight, obviously. And I can imagine that there might be a sort of... Uh, one could have a similar response to say, well, you know, Doreen's written this incredible book. She's clearly quite successful now. That sort of life is behind her, but it's not that easy, I presume. No, it's not. And I think that the pandemic has been really difficult for very, very many people. But for mothers and carers, they've kind mm. of disappeared from view, haven't they? Yeah. I'm an unpaid carer. One of my children has a disability. And so that adds an extra dimension. And yeah, it was just really lovely to read this very articulate young woman writing about it and to have it acknowledged that the experiences stay. And the second article that you um, told me you've been reading is something a little bit different. It's closer to a different aspects of soundings, isn't it? Yes. So this is the most incredible writer, Bathsheba Demuth. She's a professor, an American professor, and she also writes about whales. And I also have her book waiting to be read. <laughs> She has written a book called The Floating Coast, an environmental history of the Bering Strait, which I hope to be able to read very soon. And her writing is absolutely exquisite. Her article, she's done in an article, I feel, what I try to do in my entire book. She's just so precise with her language. And what I really love is the beginning of the article where she says she describes a grey whale calf being born and she makes it a she. So Mm. she immediately gives it a character and a kind of personhood. And she says that before a grey whale becomes a home or a barrel of oil or a metaphor, before she enters the realm of human meaning, she is a being complete in herself. And oh my God, I love that sentence because there's part of me which really objects to whales being used as metaphors. Mm. They're not metaphors, they're beings and they have communities and lives as do all other living things on the planet. And perhaps if we weren't so concerned about, you know, using them as metaphors, we might actually think a little bit more about how our consumption is affecting them. I just love how she's able to take these ideas and make them so beautiful. It's a beautiful article. I can't, again, I, it was one, something I, I had sort of missed. I hadn't seen it before and then read it um, in advance of, of talking to you today. And it, some of the imagery has really stayed with me. I'm kind of fascinated to ask, though, what's your relationship since writing Soundings? Are you thrilled when you come across other work that's about whales like this, you know, particularly if it's very beautifully written or if it's very um, uh, informative? Or do you feel like people are stepping on your toes and it's your sort of area of expertise now? Oh my God, no, I'm so thrilled, <laughs> but particularly by Bathsheba Dimuth because everything she writes is so astounding. Um, and no, the thing is, I don't feel like I'm an expert at all. And I should just say, I have only just finished writing sounding, so I, I haven't had time to read very much at all for several years. But um, I can't not read things when she writes them and she would be the expert, not me. She spent a huge amount of time 
up in the Russian Arctic with mm. um, Yupik uh, whalers who are related to the Inupiaq, but on the Russian side. You know, I find her writing very inspiring. Mm, brilliant. Our shells will be back in just a moment. 1-size-fits-all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes and I'm talking to Doreen Cunningham about how exciting she finds it when uh, she comes across other brilliant writers uh, working on the same subject as her. Next up, Doreen, could you tell me a bit about a book that has made you think about feminism in a new way? I have recently started reading All About Love by Bell Hooks. And what I loved about this book is how accessible it makes the ideas. Again, this is a very eminent academic writing about feminism and in the first few chapters she looks at our definitions of love and how faulted they are and how it seems to me revolutionary it would be to just look at the word properly um, she's broken it down into components uh, through research or, or kind of drawing on other people's research and the, the message is is quite simple really but it's very much that love is a verb and there are components to it. It's not a fluffy romantic feeling that happens to you. It's a way of behaving in the world, a choice, and it's not romantic. Um, and what I found quite freeing was the way she defines it. She has a list which are care, affection, recognition, respect, commitment, trust and honest and open communication and she says that without those aspects it's not love and I actually really liked this um and what she ends up saying is that love and abuse cannot coexist mm. and that many people cling to a notion of love which makes bad behavior or abuse acceptable because they want to believe that they are loved and I can see that it could be difficult to own the fact that actually what you're experiencing in a relationship is not love um, 
but you can still say, you know, you can say there was, she, she talks about a relationship actually she had where there was care and there were other things, but in the end, it wasn't love. Mm. Um, and I just find that terribly freeing. And I guess it's a very good basis for um, healthy relationships, um, you know, for feminism. And it, it, it's a it's a foundation stone, isn't it, for how we relate to each other. And I really enjoyed looking at that. It's so fascinating. This is the second time that somebody's chosen um, All About Love as a book that, you know, for the answer to this question, I think it was Anne Friedman in our very first season who also talked about it. Um, I'm really fascinated to know, how did you come across this? Was it a recommendation? Did somebody make a recommendation to you? Was it a book that has been on your shelf for a while? Like how how and why were you reading this particular book recently? <laughs> I was reading this book because I knew I was going to have to talk about feminism to you. <laughs> And I had asked my neighbours. That's probably the best answer yet. <laughs> if they had any good books. And uh, I got lent this one. So it's been lent to me by a neighbour. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. And then actually you found it quite fascinating to read. Oh, it's absolutely lovely. Yeah, it's really strengthening. Had you read Bell Hooks before? No, no. I, I haven't actually read many books. I'm not a big, you know, I, ha- I don't have the time to think about things. I ha- haven't read books on feminism since I was very young, since way before I was a mum you know I went into science and social sciences are not my area so what I tend to talk about and think about are, are the sciences and my life experience and so it was actually really lovely to to go back and to look at this I knew oh. of her but I had never actually dived into a book before oh well I sort of feel like then in a I, I don't feel bad about I felt a bit bad at asking you making you do extra homework as it were but then if you've enjoyed the experience <laughs> that's a good sign <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it's been good and last up today Doreen if I may could you tell me about a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender whom you particularly admire well I'm going to give you two because oh, I want to give you a whale first up I'm going to give you a whale and she is called Airheart this whale and she features in soundings she lives in the northern waters of Puget Sound She is a grey whale mother, so she does this incredible migration from Mexico to the Arctic with her calves when she has them. But what she's done in Puget Sound is really quite astounding. She is the founder, a marine biologist there, John Callum Bokidis, a really renowned whale expert, first spotted her in 1990, and he has seen other whales following her. And she has found a new food source where they go into quite a risky area in the intertidal zone and suck up shrimp, ghost shrimp near the shore. It's not what grey whales usually feed on. And this is a sign of adaptation. Uh, You know, this is almost an emergency food bank for whales if if they're not getting enough of what they need to eat in, in the Arctic. And so she is a pioneer I think about those grey whale mothers a lot, you know, their endurance and what they're doing. And she's really doing something quite spectacular for her whole species, as are many other grey whales, I'm sure. So first of all, you get your whale, but I will give you a person (laughs) as well, a human, should I say. Angela Davis, the legendary, again, academic, black American academic who has been so active on talking and educating people about the prison system and who in 1970 faced three death penalties. The whole apparatus of the state was set up against Angela Davis because she was 
such a clear thinker and was seeing straight through how the prison system was basically being weaponized against black communities. And she says uh, in in her interviews, you know, Richard Nixon was the president, Ronald Reagan was the governor of California. She was represented by the FBI as being armed and dangerous, and they meant to send her to the death chamber to make a point. And this was a time when they were attacking black leaders, either assassinating them or exiling them, you know, trying to destroy the black leadership. And she managed to mobilise a a response that basically got her freed. Aretha Franklin offered to pay her bail, although unfortunately, when it needed to happen, and there was a very short window when she could actually be freed, Aretha Franklin was in the Caribbean and couldn't be reached in this time when communications were a lot more difficult. And a white farmer then put up his farm as bail in order to get her out until Aretha Franklin came back into communication. And so there there was this big effort formed around her. But she, Angela Davis, when she's speaking now, she speaks about environmental justice and climate change. Mm. And she emphasizes how, first and foremost, climate change affects every facet of social justice. It's ground zero of social injustice. And she has said, quote, if we don't manage to save this planet, then it makes little sense to be involved in all the other struggles that we face. So when I think of her, I think of her incredible bravery and her incredible brain. I like to think about her as well as Earhart the whale. That's such a beautiful kind of place to end the episode, I think, particularly because I was after reading soundings, I was so intrigued to know in a way how much of those sort of whales, how much of them stays with you over the years, how much of their kind of lives are you still thinking about? And clearly by choosing Earhart, that's a proof positive that they're always with you. Thank you so much for listening. Our Shells was brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Doreen Cunningham, and tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.